Welcome to the Catholic Author Show, the show about fiction for modern Catholic authors. We talk creed, craft, and co-creation rooted in grit, grace, gods, and dragons. I'm your host, Dominic DeSouza, novel lover, all-around creative, and the founder of Catholic Author. We are here to inspire your faith and your fiction. We hope that you enjoy this episode. Hi everyone, welcome. Dominic here with Catholic Author and the show Silhouettes of the Truth. Today we're joined by Katie Campbell. Welcome Katie, how are you? Good, how are you doing? Doing great. We're going to have some fun today. So Katie Campbell, she has written several fairy tale novels. We're going to have some fun chatting about those today. Um, Katie, where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from, uh, from Kingston, Washington, kind of out on the peninsula near the water. Okay. How, um, how long have you been writing? Let's let's dig right into the author origins uh, section. Tell us about your story. Who are you? How did you get into writing? Yeah, so I mean, basically, I've been writing since as long as I could remember, since <laughs> probably before I could even physically write, I would be dreaming up uh, stories and I would draw them out as pictures. And um, my mom was just reading to me from a very young age. So I was always making up stories and stuff. So I started really writing probably when I was about uh, about nine years old and uh, wrote my first book, started writing my first novel then and then published it 10 years later when I turned 19. Wow. So that was my uh, that was my children's book. I call that my practice book. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I started writing kind of in a more uh, professional manner a couple of years ago, maybe uh, 2017, 2018. I started um, creating short stories for my blog. Uh, and then I published a, another novel in 2020 as well. And then one later in early 2021. Awesome. I assume you've got more in the pipeline. Oh yeah. <laughs> Lots coming. <laughs> Any good novel or author worth their salt does. So um, tell us about your latest book. How, uh, how was it born? How did, well, we'll get into the rest of it. Where did the, what is the latest book? And then what was the inspiration for it? Yeah, so I had two books that came out right around the same time. Um, and how the whole thing got started is um, the first one is called Love, Treachery and Other Terrors. And it's a coming of age story about a young king um, in a fantasy version of the medieval world uh, who gets basically overthrown by his sister and then has to learn how to take responsibility and go back and basically get his kingdom back from her because it's being destroyed. Um, so that's that's the first one. And that was born out of me kind of looking at traditional fairy tales, right? So I wanted to make a story wherein I had a character who was just genuinely, you know, a good person who had been who had been um, deceived and uh, mistreated by his older two siblings. So this is sort of a common pattern that I saw in a lot of fairy tales is you would have three siblings, the older two would be kind of a little bit foolish, maybe evil. Uh, and then the youngest one would be the good one who would essentially do the right thing. So you see um, his older two siblings being ambitious, fighting with each other. One ultimately kills the other one and tries to kill him. 
but then he, because he treats people right, these fairies help him to become the true king of his kingdom and to take that kingdom back. So that's kind of what uh, what inspired the idea was I wanted to make a hero who was who was someone who was a genuinely good person, you know, not perfect, certainly struggles with a lot of things, uh, struggles with things that modern readers would would identify with. So um, depression, scrupulosity, uh, zero self-confidence in the beginning. And through okay. God's grace, he's able to grow into a really powerful uh, character at the end. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I was just this past week listening to um... Who is it? Stan Lee was talking about the origin of, of Spider-Man and he was like, someone asked him, come up with a new hero. We need to create a new superhero. And, and he was like, um, ended up coming up with the name, but then he thought this stroke of genius of, I'm going to give him personal problems. Let's make him a pimply young dork, you know, who can't get a girl and he's in high school. And, and he went to pitch this to the, the director or the, whoever's in charge of the newspapers or something, comic books. And the guy was like, Stan, this is the trashiest idea ever. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> Um, superheroes don't have personal problems. They're they're mythical archetypal constructs of like the perfect human being. They don't have personal problems. Well, he ended up going on the side and getting it out there anyway. And then it ended up being this roaring success, you know. And then the guy apparently came running back in. Hey, Stan, remember that superhero we both absolutely loved? You know, let's, <laughs> that, let's just, you know, make this thing happen. So yeah, that sense of keeping things. Um, I think we think a lot of fairy tale characters are often one dimensional and and so on. But as we come back to them as adults, we begin to realize, oh, they're not actually as simple and flat and perfect. They are more nuanced, mm -hmm. but you have to come back to them with adult eyes almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell us yeah. about the process then of writing the book and then how you got it out there. Yeah, sure. So originally I had this idea that I wanted to put together just a ton of short stories and blog one about once a month. Um, mm -hmm. And so I started writing these and they were they were like modern fables. They were sort of, they were like parodying fairy tales while also themselves being fairy tales as well. Mm -hmm. um, and they had, you know, all the, the gory cliches of your typical fairy tales. <laughs> like fairy tales are not, you know, we, we can think of, They're you know, Disney fairy lions. tales. Yeah, <laughs> stuff with happy endings. And But if you go back to the source material, I mean, Grimm's like, Hans Christian Ambersen, they call that the like the happy fairy tales. That book is no picnic either. <laughs> like, no, there's some dark not. stuff in there. Yeah. So I started just writing, you know, I had to travel for work like month once a month, and I would spend hours sitting in airports and I would just write these stories um, mm -hmm. as I would think of them. And uh, I wrote, you know, a couple dozen of these stories, and I'm like, man, the heroes in these stories are all terrible people. <laughs> because you know, the idea is they were all cautionary tales. So the main character would do something stupid and then they would usually die in the end or something terrible would happen to them. And it, it was all like comedy. It was like a dark humor sort of. Mm -hmm. And I thought I'd really like to make one where the main character is not a terrible person, just to kind of contrast. And the original idea was to put together a compilation novel of short stories with all these terrible people. And then an overarching story where they would whoever was the main character would say something along the lines of like, you know, are there any good people? And then they would launch into these three short stories about this king named Alexander. But as I wrote the short stories for Alexander and I, I published them on my blog, I'm like, man, this, there's so much here. And I had to just cut out so much. Um, and it just grew so much. I'm like, I need to explore this character on a deeper level. So what I ended up doing was creating 
a novel just for Alexander. And then all the other short stories I put into the Canadian Nights, which is like a uh, much more of a dark comedy. Whereas um, okay. Love Country and Other Terrors, it's much more- Canadian of, Nights, like Arabian Nights or Medieval Nights? Uh, Arabian Nights. <laughs> oh, fun, okay. Straight one-to-one -one parody of, of Arabian Nights in Canada. <laughs> I just went- I, I can't actually even compute. I, I wanna see that. <laughs> Yeah, you should you should give it a try. It's it's totally bizarre. <laughs> That's fun. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so then the, the how did you end up how did you end up working your way through it and, and like sticking to it and then putting a bow on it and how did you get it out there? Yeah, all great questions. So I'd say the first thing what you really need to do if you want to finish something is you need um, you need a writing group or even if they're not other writers, you just need a group of friends to bug you about it, right? So just on a practical level for me to get anything done, I schedule a meeting with a deadline and basically say, you know, I have to get this many chapters done by the time I meet with my writing group so that they can read them and that just psychologically forces me through. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is, and I am like the worst at this, but it it's what you have to do is you have to force yourself to write it and turn off your editor brain and just, even if it's awful, just mm -hmm. write it out, write it out, get it all done, get something on paper. Then once you have the whole thing done, just put it in a closet, don't look at it for like three or four weeks. And what you'll find is that when you come back to it, you'll suddenly have all these ideas about how to reword things and make things better. And you'll be able to just get some perspective on the on kind of the holes in the plot and other things that you need to fill in. That's a really good piece of advice. Um, I always recommend, you know, once you're done with one story, move on to the next one and that'll mm -hmm. kind of help refresh things and so on. So did you self publish or you went with an actual publisher? So I self-published through a company called uh, Book Baby for the um, for the two novels that I recently uh, put out. So there's you know pros and cons to to going one way or another. Um, for me, so for self-publishing, obviously you have to do a lot of the the marketing and the, the business work yourself. Um, and but with with traditional publishing, first of all, it's a lot harder to get picked up for traditional publishing even if your book is good, like your book could be phenomenally good, but they want to, they will publish what they can sell. So if the, whatever is hot right now is, you know, teen vampire romance, that's what they're gonna pick up and publish is something they feel like they can sell in, in that market. So your story, you know, it, it could be the next the next Shakespeare of, of novels, but it's not gonna get picked up unless they think they can sell it. So that's another pro a of, of timing or just, not taking it personally and recognizing it just doesn't fit our editorial needs at this time. Try again, mm -hmm. like literally try again in a year because right now this particular genre is just way too hot to get distracted or something. Yeah, well, it's the sort of thing it's like, you know, um, after Harry Potter came out, there were a bunch of books that came out that were kind of similar, like magic schools and stuff. And everyone was going on, oh, these are all Harry Potter knockoffs. No, they weren't. Those those authors probably had those stories sitting around for years. They sent them to publishers. Publishers had a giant pile of these things somewhere. As soon as Harry Potter became successful, they went to their reject piles and started digging through to find everything that was remotely similar. And that's what they published. <laughs> it's uh, just business. <laughs> they went, they all got to market or they got out there so quickly. Yeah, um, exactly. You, so you've got 
remember seeing the, the covers of some of your books. They're just beautifully done. Like how did, how did you make that happen if you're self-publishing? Oh yeah. So I'm totally ready for this because the plug Cecilia <laughs> here. <laughs> oh, look at that. So for those listening uh, to this on Spotify or uh, afterwards, she's holding up a framed print of the cover art of one of your books. Mm -hmm. So to do this, um, I hired a artist who probably a, a lot of Catholic authors probably know who this is. Uh, her name's Cecilia Lawrence. She okay. is, um, she actually does sort of a lot of icon and Byzantine inspired art. Mm. Um, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. The reason mm. I, I picked her to do the cover was because um, Love, Treachery and Other Terrors, the first one that I, I put out was a Byzantine inspired book. And I knew I wanted a cover with an illustration. I wanted it to just be beautiful artwork um, because I'm a very visual person. I like that. But when I asked other artists to like do samples for me, uh, they were really thinking more of a Western European medieval fantasy. Right. Um, and I was looking for something with with more of that uh, orthodox look. And I looked at Cecilia's work on on deviant art, um, mm. and she did all this Byzantine art. But then she also had all these like you know fan art of like Lord of the Rings and this kind of stuff. So I thought, hey, maybe she can do something that's that's Byzantine inspired medieval fantasy. So I mm -hmm. got in touch with her. We worked together. Um, uh, it did you know it did come with a cost, obviously, uh, but I think. If you're a self-published author, uh, having a really nice cover is so important. Um, you know, they say never judge a book by its cover, but everybody judges a book by its cover. If you don't spend that, should go read books. <laughs> when there are so many books, I forget. It's like a hundred. It's like three hundred thousand a month. I I don't remember what the number is. Get wow. books get published. You looking, the cover is the first thing I look at when I'm trying to decide what to read, you know? Yeah. No, it's so true. I mean, my, we, we love going to visit, you know, bookstores, um, maybe once a month. And the, if you, if you don't have a compelling cover in a mm -hmm. sea of other covers, you know, so yeah, you, you do need to stand up. Okay. So now I'm really curious why the Byzantine sort of Orthodox, you know, it's kind of like, you're, you're making me think of like the sort of the far eastern edge of Europe, Romania kind of thing. Why is that interesting to you? And is there a favorite legend or story uh, that's really inspiring you? Yeah, so I'm trying to think how that got started. I remember at first I was just kind of brainstorming, you know, who this character should be. And I decided I decided he should be what I'll call Greekish, right? Because it's a fantasy world. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I was just kind of like, you know, what was happening in Greece in the Middle Ages? And I had probably learned about the Byzantine Empire like in eighth grade or something and then promptly forgot everything that I learned immediately. But, uh, you know, I came back to that as an adult and I started researching and I just started diving into the Byzantine Empire. And oh, my gosh, that is a fascinating history. Um, wow. I have just absolutely like, no idea. I mean, apart from the Crusades, that's I don't know anything really. It is, so there's so much, uh, well, first of all, there's just so much drama. Like it's almost comical how much people were trying to like assassinate each other. So <laughs> that that fit into my, uh, to my story really well. It's an extremely old part of the world too, isn't it? So much older than Europe, at least oh, in terms yeah. of like a consistent, like, well, sense of culture, right? And overlapping cultures. 
Yeah, the interesting thing is it's got all this, you know, first of all, the, the Greek history and then, you know, the Romans came in and, and took over that part of the world and then they became Christian. So, uh, but the interesting thing is that that part of the world, uh, the Roman Empire technically existed, you know, into the Middle Ages, it just became the Byzantine Empire because Rome was no longer part of it. So they would call it the Eastern, we would call it the Eastern Roman mm -hmm. Empire existed. Okay. So it was just a continuation of, of the Rome you all know and love. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, just so much. And one thing that struck me studying the history too was just how many very powerful women there were in the Byzantine Empire. Um, there were a couple mm -hmm. of empresses that just ruled in their, in their own right um, mm -hmm. without a husband which is just very fascinating anytime you see that in history because it's rare and it's not easy for a woman to do that during this time period as well. So yeah. it kind of inspiring the, uh, the villainous I had. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Would um, uh, primarily in Europe, it's more, um, I don't know what you call it, like male centered, not as many women. Would you say that uh, in the Byzantine culture, it was more, I don't want to say like equal, but there was, there were a lot more women. Was, was it just because the culture was different or there was more of the, the Christian effect or in spite of Christianity? What Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I'll preface this by saying that I'm not a historian. So if there's some historian watching me, you might be like, you know, biting your nails and getting mad, but this is based on my own uh, research that I did. Mm -hmm. um, so first of all, uh, there was, I think, I think more equality at that time. So for example, in the Byzantine Empire, uh, women could be doctors. Um, mm -hmm. Now they were paid less than male doctors, number one, and number two, they usually focused on women's specific needs, but they could actually act in official capacity as, as doctors. So that's one kind of sign of equality um, that happened. The other thing is, is the they had such an incredible devotion to to Theotokos to um, to Mama Mary, mm -hmm. uh, and they viewed her as their general almost, especially during the Crusades. You know, they would paint her image. They they didn't kind of look at her as this um, soft nurturing mother as much as this almost like this warrior that they would invoke when they went into yeah. battle. So wow. she's seen as just such this powerful figure. So I would say, you know, not being a historian, someone can correct me, I would say that yes, there probably was more equality in uh, the Byzantine Empire than in Western Europe. That's so interesting. So yeah. do you have a favorite, um, a favorite legend or, or fairy tale then? Mm. Oh, man, that's really hard. <laughs> maybe let's let's narrow it in. Do you have a favorite sort of Eastern Europe or maybe Byzantine? story that, that you love. Mm. Yeah, so let me think, let me think about that. Um, there's, there's so many. And what I pulled from for the first novel was kind of a mishmash of, of several. Mm -hmm. um, there's a story, you know, fr from the Arabian Nights, obviously, this is, um, this is uh, in in Arabia, right. But um, it's a story about a, a young woman, and her two brothers and her brothers want to go on a quest to find this magic bird. Now to get to this magic bird, they have to go up a hill where they're going to hear people screaming behind them, but they can't turn around and look because if they turn around and look, they're going to turn into a boulder. So the first brother says, well, I have enough willpower to do this. So he starts up the mountain. 
Um, and he hears the screaming behind him and he can't help it. He turns around and looks and he, he turns into a boulder. Uh, the second brother says, well, I can definitely do it. So he figures he has enough willpower. So he um, starts up the mountain. Of course, he hears the screaming. He turns into a boulder. The sister comes and says, you know what? I'm going to put cotton in my ears. And so she's able to go all the way up the mountain, get the bird and break her brother's curse. <laughs> but I love that story because I, I just find that story so funny about the fact that the brothers were just relying entirely on their own willpower. And then the sister comes along and she's like, she's the one who's wise, just like in Love, Treachery and Other Terrors. And so many fairy tales we know, it's mm -hmm. the youngest sibling, the one that nobody takes seriously, who mm -hmm. makes a wise decision. Why do you think that is? I mean, given that, like you said, you, it's a pattern you keep identifying and it's true, it's everywhere. I'm curious why you think that is the case, why the third time is the charm, like maybe from a cultural standpoint, or maybe there's a spiritual message or even a psychological kind of thing going on. Why do you think that the third is usually the one who figures it out? Yeah. So what I'll say, speaking from a Christian and, and from a biblical standpoint about the oldest versus the youngest child, uh, you know, in the Bible, we very often see a pattern, whereas the, the oldest child is the one who's supposed to, to be the heir, to take responsibility. And story after story, we see that person, um, you know, fall and a younger child to take take over for them. Um, so, for example, Jacob and Esau, right? Esau sold his birthright to, to Jacob for some soup. Um, so there's, there's that story. And then, um, you know, there's also, in the case of Saul, obviously they, they weren't brothers, but... Um, but Saul is the king, and David, who's the youngest of seven brothers, the one nobody takes seriously, ends up being the wisest and the strongest. So there could be some some biblical influence there. Um, this just this pattern that the person you were supposed to believe was the greatest actually isn't, and it's the person who's the humblest who becomes the greatest in the end. That's that is cool. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. From uh, from a different level or like level of analysis. Um, one thing I wonder is, like you said, the oldest or the first couple of kids in any family usually have very defined roles that they fit in, but then those kind of roles, those stereotypes, they fall off at the more mm -hmm. kids you, you sort of have. The one caveat being um, uh, Joseph in the multicolored coat, he was the favorite one. And so the sort of the father's attention jumped the whole line down to the last kid. but. In most other ones, the the older sons or, or siblings um, model the ways of acting of their culture, the closest, mm -hmm. you know, or the most are most explicit in doing that. But the youngest ones maybe don't get as much attention, or they have more time to observe the mistakes or the actions of of their elders, mm -hmm. and I think are able to to uh, disassociate themselves from. Mm -hmm just simply towing a line, you know, a little mm -hmm. more free thought that comes from actually observing the mistakes of others. Mm -hmm. um, at the very least, I think from a uh, sort of a, a recommendation or an invitation to right action, um, take a moment to observe what others have done and think a little more creatively. That's almost a universal message in these. Mm -hmm. And even just the the theme of humility is a constant theme that comes up in fairy tales. Um, I think if you're 
the you know the oldest and the heir of your household um that becomes you know that comes with a certain level of constantly being praised constantly having people sucking up to you um mm -hmm. which can feed into your pride whereas if you're the youngest mm -hmm. uh in your household um you may not be as susceptible to that now this is obviously mm -hmm. in, in fairy tales i'm not talking about <laughs> somebody's modern personal life right mm -hmm. But that's, yeah, that's yeah. But it's like, like Jacob and Esau. Esau had all kinds of demands just expected of him and given to him out the gate. Mm -hmm. And uh, did I say Jacob? I meant Esau. And Jacob mm -hmm. had to fight for that and sort of, yeah, be the Loki to that Thor and be the more devious one to sort of, you know, mm -hmm. anyhow, that's a different, different story there. Okay, moving forward. Uh, world building and backstory. <clears throat> Do you, are you a plotter or a pantser? And can you define those? A plotter or a, what was the second option? Someone who like flies by the seat of your pants or do you plot everything out meticulously? Oh, I'm a hybrid. It depends on the day. <laughs> okay. Um, so that that's a great question. So I think it's important to uh, use some story structure as a tool. I would highly recommend books like Save the Cat, for example. Um, you know, books that kind of help you break down. So I use um, eight story points, which is what I actually, I actually learned this in, in film school where you have to have very structured stories because you only have an hour and a half to tell them typically. So I'll use the same thing. So, you know, your first point is you set up the status quo. Uh, then there's the second point is upsetting the apple cart. So something comes in that upsets the protagonist status quo. Um, the, oops. Oh, looks like here we go we're almost back her camera just dropped off yeah okay. dslr is having a panic attack there <laughs> um the 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 third point is basically the the point in the story the end of act one is where the hero can't go back whatever's happened that upset his apple cart he can't go back to his status quo uh and you know it it, it goes it goes through all of these these eight story points which i use so i usually we'll kind of write down, have an idea, use those to sort of plot it out. Mm -hmm. I'll use that as a guide to, to write. But then sometimes too, you just have a great idea. You just put it down on paper, uh, right. you know, or sometimes you say, you know what, in this particular story, this structure doesn't work as well. So I'm going to be a little bit more creative here. Uh, and the wonderful thing about writing is there's just tons of room to experiment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, always, I would say always get feedback. Um, feedback is absolutely critical and that can take a lot of humility and it can be really, really painful to do. Mm -hmm. Um, but it just makes your writing so much stronger, like get someone who's going to be super honest with you. Um, and, uh, you know, they'll tell you, especially the parts where it gets boring, right? That's the, those are the most critical parts that, that need to be fixed. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's basically my process. I'm just like super ADD about it, you know, plotting one by the seat of my pants. <laughs> when it comes to stuff like um, world building, do you enjoy it? How deep do you go into it? Do you like to leave big questions even for yourself? That is an excellent question. Okay, here's how I feel about world building. I would say it depends. I've seen so many writers um, get so caught up in world building mm -hmm. um, that basically either one of two things happens, either they just don't write anything because they're like, 
you know, well, who is the king of this, you know, country that's mentioned like one time in chapter five, you know? So they just never write anything down or they write everything down and the reader is just bored out of their wits. <laughs> so just, I would think about, first of all, what you like to do as an author. For me, I'm very much a character, character driven. I like to really zoom in on particular characters and the world building needs to make sense, but it doesn't matter as much to me. Uh, so, so part of the reason why I um set it in, I set my, my book in a fantasy version of real medieval Europe, right? Was because I, I didn't want to make like lion Jesus, like in, in, in Narnia, right? Right. Because right. just Christianity as it was, as I understood it to me, was I just didn't think I could do as good a job of creating alternate universe Christianity as like C.S. Lewis could. Mm. Um, and I wanted to explore those truths of Christianity and, and make that main character a Christian. Okay. So what I did was I just said, okay, you know, this is this is medieval Europe, but you know what? There are fairies, there are dragons, and this kingdom is this is this is going to be a fantasy kingdom where the rules can can work the way I want them to. So that's that's what I did. Just enough world building to so that it made sense to set the stage, but uh, not so much that it took me away from really kind of exploring the psychology of these particular characters. Nice, nice. Mm -hmm. Are you? Uh, do you see yourself building a kind of a a world or universe you can return to multiple times, or it just it ends with each book and you start something different? Oh, absolutely. So the universe, I, I've sort of built myself a sandbox universe, <laughs> which I, I blog about um, called Parasimpan, which is basically, it's just an alternate version of this world, you know, this world with fantasy elements in it. Uh, and especially in, in the Canadian nights, I just go so over the top. Somebody, one of my friends read, read that book. They're like, this is Katie turned up to 11. Um, it's just totally bonkers. <laughs> So, so you've got, you know, the president of the USA, but she's a woman and she doesn't know where Canada is. <laughs> um, and you've got the, the prime minister of Canada, who's, you know, his name is Liam Champagne. And he's like the most Canadian prime minister there is like all the stereotypes and there's, you know, hordes of angry beavers. So it's just, it's totally bonkers and out there. And if you like crazy stuff like that, you might like it. Uh, Love Treachery and Other Terrors is kind of set in the same universe, but it's a little bit more uh, restrained. Like it's it's still very, like I'd say a very funny book. There's a lot of humorous elements, but I'm definitely uh, holding myself back a little bit, not just going totally crazy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Canadian right. Nights is kind of like my, my guilty pleasure book. I just turned off all my filters and just puts, you know, wrote whatever I wanted to. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, to, to ask you about your writing process, how do you make it work for you? How do you stay focused? How do you get it done? Do you have a special brand of magic dust or tea, or is it literally <laughs> butt in seat on a Friday morning? How do you make it happen? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, I, so first of all, uh, when I was working a nine to five job, um, so I, you know, I worked, I worked at this, you know, nine to five for the last like seven or eight years. Um, and I also have, uh, was having kids at the same time. So that was a lot of work, 
really hard to find times to write. So what I ended up doing was uh, I would wake up at 5 a.m., spend an hour writing from, you know, an hour or two writing from about six to seven or eight. Then I would jump on to my, my day job. Um, and if I had any time or energy after the kids went to bed, I would do a little more then. So uh, it was really very, very hard to do that. Mm -hmm. But if you love it, you'll find time to do it. You'll make time to do it. If you find yourself, you know, um, can, if you always have something else to do, maybe you don't love it as much as you think you do. <laughs> I mean, I get there, you know, there are certain definitely times and situations where it's just, you know, absolutely impossible and you would if you had time. But I, I think a lot of the time, you know, it, it's just a matter of deciding, first of all, how much do you love it? And second of all, is it something that you want to do professionally or is it something you just want to do for fun? Because if it's something you just want to do for fun, then just do it. And who cares if you finish, you know, take that pressure off yourself. <laughs> if it's you want to actually publish a book, then um, it helps to definitely helps to, to cut out that time or find whatever uh, whatever scheduling method works for you. Mm -hmm. um, and accountability for me is the other thing. Like, that's why it's so important to me to have that writing group. Um, because they'll say like, they're, they're the ones who say, okay, you know, this was supposed to be done and it's not done. And then, you know, I get really embarrassed and, and that's a really good motivator for me. <laughs> when, uh, when you're not writing, I assume, well, like most writers, our, our minds turn to those, those projects that we're working on and so on. How do you make the most out of your, not your downtime, but your, your non-writing time? Do you like carry a notebook around with you, voice recorder, trust in memory? This is so important. Okay, this is this is maybe the most important piece of advice I could give any writer. Your stories are made out of the time that you are not writing. Hmm. Um, basically, if you're not out there having experiences, meeting people, learning things, uh, if you're spending all of your time in your own little bubble writing stuff, then you don't have any material with which to write. Um, so what you're going to end up with is something that's super cliche, just kind of based on everything else that's out there. Um, but it's your unique experiences that are going to make your writing unique. It's the unique people that you meet that are going to inspire your characters. So what I would say is, um, you know, go out and do stuff. Go to the zoo, go get a, a volunteer work, get, you know, um, meet meet people and I know as a writer like I am super introverted as well so sometimes it can take a, a lot of effort <laughs> to do that but mm -hmm. go to a, go to a book fair you know find other people who are interested in the same things you are or have another hobby that's not writing whether that's you know gardening or traveling or whatever else if it's just even just playing with your kids you know building with duplos like <laughs> all that stuff like inspires that's what I get the material to to make my stories from yeah, you also need these other experiences to kind of, uh, well, trigger thoughts and trip ideas and, and find out who you are, or what you think, because you, you don't find out who you are by sitting down staring at a screen. Like you said, you find out who you are and you find out what your stories are when, yeah, when you're not writing, when you're out doing stuff. Yeah, and I would say as a Catholic, oh, sorry. No, just saying, yeah, that's a great quote. Go ahead, go ahead. As, 
what I was what I would say too is as, as a Catholic author, you've got to trust in in God, right? So I was when I was working at this nine to five, right? There were times when I would just be really, you know, I got into this. It wasn't my dream job. Um, and there were times where I would just be like really like kind of like bitter about it. Like, oh, I just mm -hmm. want to be writing. Like this is taking time away from the thing that I love to do. But I started to realize something that the things I was doing for that job inspired so much of my writing. Um, you know, I met really interesting people. I learned really interesting things. Um, I got an idea for what, for example, corporate culture was like. Um, you know, I, I wrote several stories in the Canadian Nights have to do with uh, with corporate culture, for example. Um, there was a ton of them set in airports just because of all the, all the traveling I did. And I met so many just fascinating people, um, through, through working. So, you know, God has a plan. You don't always see it in the moment. Um, but if you trust like, Hey, this is, I'm really trying, I'm trying to do a good job at this, even though it's not my dream job. Um, and you just ask God like, okay, this is what I want please give me this, help me to be a successful writer, help me to find time to write. And God might say, not right now, you'll know why eventually. Like, and that sucks to hear, but it, it is what it is. And if you let God take the lead, it's gonna be better in the end. I agree. How, uh, how do you internalize that phrase, write what you know? Mm. How have you responded to that or made sense of that? That's a tricky one. Um, so because you know there's a lot of things that i know for example i know i know what heartbreak feels like uh i know what it is to be in love for example um i know what it is to be scared i've never fought a dragon before <laughs> so i can't write from experience for that um i've never <laughs> i've never been a man right so i've, I've written male characters before <laughs> uh so I would say, I would say this, um, you, you can still write what you know, um, even if it on the surface might not seem like it. So let's take the dragon, for example. I love dragons, huge dragon fan here. Whenever I write dragons, uh, they're largely inspired by birds. And I raised a lot of birds growing up. They are just the mm. funniest animals you can think of they're just intensely jealous they collect shiny things right just like dragons do uh -huh. so when i write dragons i kind of write them inspired by the birds that i raised growing up um or for example you might be trying to write for someone of the opposite gender i have men come to me a lot friends saying like how do you write a woman like how do you understand women uh and my answer to that is you know if you're wondering what a woman would think or do in this situation, ask yourself, what would you do in this situation? Because 99.9% .9 of the time, it's gonna be the same, right? Mm -hmm. uh, men and women are definitely different, but they have more in common than they do mm -hmm. different. And I think that's, a lot of people kind of forget that sometimes, and they think there's some massive mystery that they've got to unlock. Uh, but the other part of that is just, you know, get to know people or ask somebody like, mm -hmm. sometimes I'll ask like my husband, like, is this how you think, you know, you would have behaved as a as a 15 year old boy in this particular situation. And, um, you know, he'll be willing, he's a trusted friend, he'll be willing to like, 
talk to me about that and kind of kind of go deep with me. So it helps, you know, to, to write what you know. And if you don't know, find out as best you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's also kind of a, what do they call it? Like learning transfer, you know, so mm -hmm. you may not have ever fought a dragon, but you have mm -hmm. faced some kind of great fear. I don't know if it was biking down a hill or facing up to an angry boss or I don't, whatever, you know, we have experienced the sense of, you know, fear and overcoming that and, you know, sensing danger and so on. Those are all components of, of facing a dragon. And, and in each of those situations, those were dragons for you. I mean, if you listen to Jordan Peterson, he's like, mm -hmm. everything in life is a dragon. If you look at it closely enough, it's how you deal with it. So I think that um, uh, if you can just swap out that situation with something you're already familiar with, that's what actually makes your stories unique is that how you uh, approached those things. And then even how you can look back at how you did approach those things, you know, with an, an eye of kindness and more maturity and realize, okay, that was the wrong response, but heck, that makes for a great story right there, especially if we dial up the emotion or dial up the energy or something. Um, oh, Katie, yeah. how can people get in touch with you? How can they buy your books and uh, learn more about you? Yeah, great question. So um, my website is um, katiesfables.com. Um, and you can email me at katiesfables at gmail.com. And there's a contact form on my website, which shoots to the same email. So, hey, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Um, it really, uh, it really delights me when I when I get emails, emails from people. So that's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Lastly, in our last minute here, um, if you had one minute to share a message of encouragement to Catholic authors, what would you want to say? I would say, um, let God drive your writing. Uh, because if you, if, if you think that you're going to write, you know, the, the next great, you know, great Catholic novel, but you're not letting God be a part of that process, that's not going to work out so well for you. Um, but if you let God be a part of everything you do and you pray every time you sit to write and you ask, you know, is this something that, that, um, God would want me to want me to do, want me to write, then it's going to be, it's going to be whatever he wants it to be. And if you were to offer one tip, so you praying before sitting down, mm -hmm. what have you found works for making God a part of your, your creativity? Yeah, I would say, um, yeah, pray before you sit down, number one, and uh, read scripture. Scripture has it all. It has all those fairy tale elements like we discussed earlier. So read the Bible. There you go. All righty. Thank you, Katie. It was wonderful to spend this time with you. I hope that people uh, listening to this episode, authors, uh, get uh, some enjoyment from it and, and visit, visit your website. Hey there, thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please give it a thumbs up. Go ahead and uh, subscribe to us on YouTube, uh, Spotify. You know, you can head on over to catholicauthor.us and join the mailing list and get notified uh, usually each Wednesday once a week of all of the new podcasts and blog posts that we've written and the updates going on in our community. But please do share up the one person that you think would really like to hear this particular interview uh, and maybe learn from the guest that we just chatted with. Um, you know, come and check us out at the community we're building in Catholic Author. It's the super friendly creative community for the modern Catholic author. Come and give, get feedback, share your insights and your works in progress, build a network. 
of supportive friends. Plus, there's a whole lot more going on. Check us out. Join us at catholicauthor.us. Until next time, keep writing.